This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Supreme Court appointment of David Gorsuch came as no surprise if you're a close follower of Trump and his decision-making process. It was said to come down to Gorsuch and Thomas Hardiman, a Pittsburgh-based jurist who had a blue-collar background. Politico asserted a blue-collar background would appeal to Trump. Yeah, DeVos, Wilbur Ross, Bannon, Gary Cohen, Mnuchin, or his pick to head the antitrust division, Rich Uncle Pennybags, who you probably know better as Mr. Monopoly. But Gorsuch is so debonair. He's so silvery. He's so symmetrical. And you know Trump loves a guy who looks the part. And his jurisprudence is impeccable, if very, very conservative. The Democrats could try to filibuster him, but they could lose the seat and the filibuster and the next appointment in the process. I do enjoy, though, the attempts to make this scion of privilege in uh, Judge Gorsuch seem so relatable. Let me read this sentence from his official bio posted on the whitehouse.gov. As a young man, he delivered papers and worked as a front desk clerk at a Howard Johnson to make extra money. So I guess he's used to serving orange-topped icons. Mitch McConnell, the new master of the Senate, he really is on an obstructionist winning streak. McConnell was on the Hugh Hewitt show making his case that the Gorsuch nomination had nothing to do with that other guy. You know, that guy from last year, Merrick Garlic, something like that. No, look, we were right in the middle of a presidential election year, and I wasn't going to let Barack Obama fill his vacancy in the 11th hour of his presidency. So complaining about last year has nothing to do with this year. This is the beginning of a four-year term. See, McConnell just wants a justice who upholds the Constitution. Except maybe Clause 2, Section 1, where it says the president's term is four years. Gorsuch, as a young man, was close to executive power. His mother served as Ronald Reagan's EPA administrator. Now, I heard this fact as a selling point. You know, any tie to Ronald Reagan should please conservatives. Yet, maybe they should know that the woman was a disaster. She was the first cabinet-level officer to be cited for contempt of Congress. Let me read from the Chicago Sun-Times when she left. Clearly, she had to go. She had become too much of a liability for a president, mocked as for the polluters, by the polluters, and of the polluters. I'm not saying the sins of the mother run onto the son, but don't use it as a selling point. The real selling point for Gorsuch is that He would be on a wish list of any Republican president, with the exception of perhaps General Mattis. He is the most qualified candidate for any role that Trump has appointed, and also that it's unlikely the Democrats can do anything about it. Or to quote Senator Old Mother Goose. Uh, They can can huff and they can puff, but they're not going to blow the house down. On the show today, I spiel about a country that isn't first in Trump's America, because it isn't America. Also, it might be last in his eyes. It's Iran. But first, an audio series about the greatest swindler of all time. Get ready to feel the Bernie. Madoff.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At points, Bernie presented himself as the smartest guy in the room. I built artificial intelligence. Other times, a victim. Even though I did the wrong thing, they betrayed me. He was merely a pawn in someone else's game. Everybody was greedy. Everybody wanted to go on, and I just went along with it. Went along with it? With what? How? Bernie Madoff oversaw a $65 billion Ponzi scheme, which wiped out fortunes and whole families. While the former chairman of the NASDAQ is in prison, two of his sons are dead, one from cancer, the other by his own hand. Madoff left a trail, a trail of evidence of victims and of explanations, really justifications. He submitted to hours of taped interviews with journalist Steve Fishman, and Fishman has turned those tapes into Ponzi Supernova, a new series from Audible. Hello, Steve. Hi, thanks for having me. So Bernie, before we knew his name or people outside the world of, uh, you know, Barron's subscribers knew his name, he was legit or uh, he was at least successful for a long time. Started in the 1960s, an early adapter to computers. He invented a practice of making money on executed trades that was described as like a legal kickback. So I'm thinking if you pretty much own a legal kickback, you should be doing pretty good from that. That's a sweet deal. Why wasn't it good enough for Bernie? Well, it was a, a, a really sweet deal. I mean, Bernie told me that there were years when uh, he made $100 million. Without said, cheating, without a And he scheme. says that was legitimate because yeah. Bernie really is, it, it's quite fascinating that Bernie is this legitimate pioneer an accidental champion of the small investor because what he does is he comes in, he says, Hey, you know, there's this small club of people taking a dollar for every share traded. It doesn't have to be that way. Bernie is the one whose company really leads the automation of the stock exchanges and pushes those commissions way, way down. Ironically, that really forces Bernie's business way, way down as well. But for a, a, a time, he is really riding high. He's transformed Wall Street. He's a legend of Wall Street. He's a titan. And so Bernie didn't need the money. Yeah. Bernie didn't need the money. As he told me, he said, if you think I woke up one day and decided I should do a Ponzi scheme because I need the money, you're wrong. Now, Bernie's story is he's a legitimate guy making lots of money on his legitimate businesses. He also has this small investment business taking in investors. His story, again, he's making legitimate money for these investors. People start throwing money at him, the hedge funds, the banks. Hey, uh, take this billion dollars. We think he can do great things about with it. And Bernie can't say no. I mean, we need to just delve just a bit into the psychology of who Bernie is. He's this guy from Queens, you know, goes to Hofstra University, law school dropout. There's no way Bernie enters that kind of white shoe world. Right. Of Wall Street. He, he, he takes some savings as a lifeguard. His father-in-law gives him some money. He And and there are a lot of, actually, self-made men with ne- with uh, backgrounds not that dissimilar. But he really, really, really sees himself as an underdog, and it drives him. And he sees himself as an outsider. And, you know, somehow 
you know, Bernie's father failed. He had a very successful business. He went bankrupt. So Bernie's kind of got that hanging over his head. Success is a, a particular poignant driver for him. And he sees himself as an outsider. He literally said, listen, I was getting the crumbs from the big bank. And, and you know, for a while he was happy to. But he really wanted to be an insider, to be a macher, as yeah. he would say, yeah. right? A big shot. And... Here come these legitimate banks, these prestigious banks, these big hedge funds saying, Bernie, you've got these amazingly consistent returns over a long period of time. Bernie didn't get spectacular returns, but they were amazingly consistent. And so the banks say, listen, here's a billion dollars. And Bernie says that was really hard for him to, to turn down. You know, it was, in Bernie's words, an ego trip. So now you have the little guy from Queens with that really outer borough accent, you know, running money for uh, Banco Santander and, you know, hedge funds that invest eventually invest $7 billion with Bernie. And, and that's the trap. There's all this money thrown at him. And Bernie has a character floor. He does not have the character to stand up and say, you know, I can't do this. Yeah. I mean, Bernie in his own mind is a guy who's always risen to the challenge, who's, you know, stormed the country club that controlled Wall Street, who's been a real pioneer in renovating it. And so, you know, in the back of my mind, his mind, there's this idea that, hey, why can't I do this? But here's what I don't understand. A pyramid scheme works that you have the guy who starts the scheme, he brings in a level of investors, uh, they bring in a level of investors, the next level pays the level before them, pays them off, there's no actual product, there's no actual profit, it's just more people, this is why it's called a pyramid scheme, more people paying in to pay the old people. It has to collapse, and the guy at the top has to know this, and he just has to have an escape plan if he wants to get away with it. So... Was Bernie's a pure pyramid scheme? Um, you describe him getting a lot of money thrown in, thrown at him by Wall Street. Does he get even more money to pay off those Wall Street guys? It seems like people weren't paid off. They stayed with it forever. And it also seems that if Bernie knew he was running a pyramid scheme, why did he never make an escape plan? That's a fascinating question. So, first of all, you're right. And this, for me, was the fascinating thing through our Ponzi Supernova series, is that Bernie, as one person said, he's a local swindler, an extraordinarily talented and amoral con man. No doubt we can stipulate to that. But Bernie is weaponized and taken worldwide by the financial system. So, all these low-level investors that enter at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. They're recruited in Europe, uh, throughout the United States, throughout Latin America, from Chile to Mexico. And who does that? The big feeder funds. They bring guys in in Chile and they say, uh, you know, here's our private bank, you know, wood panel, you know, have a class of whatever, espresso, and we have this really safe thing. And the guys, the investors, some of them are quite small. I mean, uh, I heard stories of people investing $15,000 with Bernie. And those funds all get aggregated by these big banks and essentially just funneled to Bernie with, you know, very little work, as mm -hmm. it turns out, in between. So yes, in answer to your question, there are uh, thousands and thousands of small people who are providing money to whomever wants to take money out of Bernie. And again, you're right. 
a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme is doomed to fail. And, you know, Bernie knows this. Now, the amazing thing about Bernie's Ponzi scheme is that it lasted for at least two decades. I mean, that longevity is insane in terms of a Ponzi scheme. I mean, think about it. He went through the market crash of 2001, 1987 market crash, and Bernie continued and also to report these fabulously, you know, 10% consistent returns. But in terms of what Bernie's escape plan is, now Bernie tells me he didn't have an escape plan. His escape plan, in a sense, was prison. He says, I wish I'd been caught earlier because it was a nightmare for me. All this pressure, I was so tired. He claims that in 2008, which is was enormous pressure on him because everybody was taking money out. He says he could have maintained, there were people he could have gotten a billion dollars from. Uh-huh. And he could have gone on, but his claim is, I was so tired to the bone. And we, you know, we interviewed one guy who related this story about Bernie in his office towards the end, just with a blood pressure cuff on his arm, you know, just monitoring the way his system's deteriorating. And he said, in fact, I wish I'd been caught earlier. Now, does he really think that? Does he, you know, at some level, does he believe that? I don't know. But, you know, running a Ponzi scheme is enormously pressure laden. What's the chance that this is happening just not at $65 billion and not run by an Icarus figure who's flying too close to the sun? A hundred percent. I mean, just uh, happened the other day. There was a guy running a billion dollar Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme. I mean, it just happens all the time. Uh, the, The remarkable thing about Bernie's is that it was so big. And it was so long-lived. I mean, yeah. as you say, Ponzi scheme. It was so intertwined too. with uh, the DNA of Wall Street. The DNA of Wall Street. And here's one more point I think your your listeners will, will be interested in, which is that, you know, there were enormous feeder funds, uh, funds which basically go out and their sole job was to market Madoff. And in return, they said, well, we're going to do due diligence. Sleep well. You know, you're okay. We've got your back here. And did they do due diligence? Well, very obviously not any effective due diligence. And when you look inside this and, and, and you know, in Ponzi Supernova, Madoff is kind of our guide inside this, this world. And he says, he's asked, you know, did they not understand? Do these hedge funds, do these feeder funds not understand what you were doing? And Madoff said, I didn't think they wanted to know. Yeah. You know, I thought it was willful blindness. Well, why didn't they want to know? Well, I was paying this one fund. These managers made $100 million a year off me. Uh, I mean, it's kind of uh, an athletic uh, feat to have your head in the sand and your hand out. But that's what, what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. And what about the, you know... Your series also demonstrates that there is an applicability to this lesson beyond Ponzi schemes, and it's that the investigators are so behind the swindlers. Now, was that that they didn't know or that they were so wet behind the ears or that they were incentivized, the investigators, to you know eventually work on Wall Street, that they didn't want to make waves? I think the investigators were of good faith, and in, and in fact, uh, a bunch of them are still at the SEC. Yeah. So, um, well, some of them actually eventually caught up to them. So there are some successful ones. Yeah. 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 The, the, clearly, there's some successful ones, and no doubt they've learned and become an experience. I think it was a combination of things. First of all, they were incredibly junior. They'd never investigated a Ponzi scheme. Bernie was a legend on Wall Street. Who would believe that Bernie Madoff was doing a Ponzi scheme? So there's that. There's also this kind of incredible 
seductiveness that Bernie is master of. Now, listen, he's a master con con guy, and he has charm and bluster. He knows when to deploy anger and irritation. And there is a charm that he unleashes on these junior examiners so that they are in awe of him. You know, there's this email that one sends to the other. Hey, when Bernie's chairman of the SEC, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission, maybe one of us can be his chief of staff. <laughs> so it's not the normal relationship of examiner to examinee. The prison shut down your communication with Bernie or phone calls, writing, in-person interviews. Have you ever had contact with him after those phone calls? I've had indirect contact with him. You know, not nearly as satisfying, um, but I've been able to get messages to him and ask some things. Um, But really, the 10, 12 hours of tapes we have now, three of them were from my direct conversations with him from prison, and then the rest were interviews with him in prison by others, which we have gotten tape of. And so we get to, you know, hear Bernie speak. It was an incredible day when the prison shut me down. And the reason they claimed that uh, I, I should no longer communicate with Bernie was because I was declared a security risk. Now, you know, you can see me. I'm obviously a Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah. Well, although look at Bernie himself. This guy didn't seem that uh, nefarious and yet $65 billion. So Steve Fishman is the voice and the reporter behind Ponzi Supernova, which is an Audible series. It is a six-part series, and it's at audible.com slash Ponzi Supernova. You can listen to it. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks so much, Mike. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Today, Donald Trump spoke about Black History Month and brought up a hurt that is still fresh and so painful for so many was what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. You read all about Dr. Martin Luther King uh, a week ago when uh, somebody said I took the statue out of my office. And it turned out that that was 
Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. Yes, the tragedy of MLK, which is, of course, that Time magazine said that his bust was removed from the White House Oval Office. The Time writer quickly corrected himself. Uh, the apology was immediately accepted by Sean Spicer. But really, despite that, how can any, anyone go on after that? From what I understand, it was only the brave leadership of Jared Kushner, who climbed aboard a flatbed truck in Indianapolis and read Aeschylus to quiet the distraught mob. That was how a full-scale riot was averted. Who then, given this grievous wrong, could fault the president for naming names of those in the media who still bear the national stain? But I don't watch CNN, so I don't get to see you as much as I don't like watching fake news. See, when I heard that, I knew what he was doing. He was, by implication, lauding the works of Sojourner Truth and Ralph Abernathy. You know, it's Black History Month, because I take Trump literally, seriously, and metaphorically. But I did know there was one news organization that Trump did not single out for opprobrium, and that is the FARS news agency, a semi-official news agency of the Iranian regime. Headline, Iranian speaker raps U.S. for ignoring supporters of terrorism in travel ban list. So this was a story about how the Iranians were saying, yeah, what about all these other countries that sponsor terrorism? But I want to concentrate because what grabbed me were those first three words, Iranian speaker raps. Hit it! I'm Ali Larajani and I'm here to say Trump's Muslim ban is just getting in the way. Where the Saudis, the Egyptians, not one Afghani? Take the mic, MC President Hassan Rouhani. If you want to beat ISIS, listen to my words. Don't arm Assad. Don't arm the Kurds. Give money to Iran. You know how we roll. Just like Reagan did. I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. So those rapping Iranians have a point, actually. Let's sidestep the, is this a Muslim ban or a Muslim pause or a residence of seven predominantly Muslim country pause? Let's just look at the countries on the list. Somalia, Yemen, Sudan. Those are failed states. So is Syria. Chaotic, dangerous places where evildoers do, in fact, lurk. Yes, I know no one from that state has attacked the United States. Doesn't mean they couldn't. Doesn't mean they haven't attacked elsewhere. Of course, also lurking within those places are innocent people who the U.S. has long, but perhaps no longer stood as a beacon of hope for. But if you have a list of countries where terrorists might come from, those are good countries to have on the list. And hear me out. I still think this is a terrible idea headline in search of a problem. I mean, how much better can the vetting get? The vetting that hasn't let a single terrorist in from those countries. And even if you think there's a benefit, maybe we'll get a little bit better in the vetting, better than the perfect we've been so far, please acknowledge there's also a cost. A cost when you cast America as an enemy to Islam. Sorry, not to Islam, to seven majority Muslim countries. And also the rest of the Muslim world, which is interpreting our action against the seven Muslim majority countries as anti-Islam. If only Sean Spicer could have yelled at reporters from Al Jazeera and Al-Shabaab and the dark internet, this is not a Muslim ban, then 20% or so of the world's population wouldn't feel so damn insulted. But putting that all aside, 
Let's talk about Iraq, Iraq on the list of countries that's banned. It is a problem. Iraq is a U.S. ally. The people getting visas and the status of refugees from Iraq are the exact people we need on our side. So it's not like we're extending a kindness to them. In fact, they're serving our political purposes by being pro-U.S., or at least they have in the past. So we owe them. And the U.S. is also, when you think about it, the reason that they are refugees. So you can feel sympathy for victims of the Janjaweed rebels, let's say, but we should also feel responsible for the victims of the war in Iraq, right? If George W. Bush had made a different decision in the Situation Room, no invasion, no masses of displaced, desperate Iraqis. But yes, there could be terrorists from Iraq who could conceivably come here. I do not think the vetting makes us safer. I don't think he's thought this out. I don't think he's thought of the costs, but it's conceivable that you'd have an Iraqi who's sympathetic to ISIS. There are many Iraqis sympathetic to ISIS. Now this gets us to Iran. Bring that beat back. Okay, please don't. Good beat though. The idea that an Iranian national traveling to the U.S. on a visa would join up with ISIS is absurd. It's deeply ignorant. ISIS, Sunni, Iran, Shia. ISIS hates Shias. Iran was the first to sign up to destroy ISIS. Iranian terrorism, which exists, is state-sponsored terrorism. It is the number one sponsor of state terrorism. They fund Hezbollah. They fund the Yemeni rebels. But random Iranians do not show up in Europe, let alone America, independently detonating bombs or wielding machetes or planning attacks in the name of Allah. This is an entirely different threat and one that has nothing to do with granting individual citizens travel visas. The ban on Iran is essentially saying, well, what we're trying to do is not stop a lone wolf. That's why you would cast a net wide is we're worried about a foreign, a member of a foreign army, an officially state-sanctioned foreign army to come in and attack us. Yes, we're worried about that. No kidding. But a ban on visas is in no way addressing what's going on between our two countries. They're not attacking us. Random rogue elements from Iran are not going to attack us without the Iranian mullah's permission. And if they do, they are literally declaring war on the United States. So it's a lot more than a 90-day travel ban that keeps any would-be Iranian attackers from taking out their grievances on the United States. One other point. You know, the executive order says that exceptions will be made for religious minorities from these countries. Not just Christians, scream the administration, except when the president's on the Christian Broadcasting Network. I wonder if the president went on the Food Network, if they talk about exceptions for tabbouleh importers. Who knows? But anyway, if the religious minority ban, if that's really not just code for Christians, when it comes to Iran, the religious minorities would be Sunni Muslims. Iran actually actively persecutes Sufis, a division of Sunnis. So the minorities in Iran that we say we might let through are much more likely to be adherents of ISIS than your regular Shiite Iranian. Now, I'm going to guess that the Trump administration isn't sophisticated enough to know or care about the splits within Islam. But to Muslims, these differences are profound. To groups like ISIS, the differences are grounds for death sentences. It just is another reason why the seven-country pause was poorly thought out. Poorly thought out on the basis of implementation, strategy, tactics, and when you think about it, internal logic. The most hopeful thing we could say is that 
It's going to be, we hope, totally ineffective window dressing whose consequence is limited to bad PR. And maybe we hope that it'll be counteracted by the sentiment of protesters. I'm glad that they're giving a different message to the Muslims of the world than the administration is. And maybe in the future, a different administration through really hard work can repair the damage. And that, my friends, is the 2017 definition of optimism. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson has still not gotten over Dewey defeats Truman, hasn't read the Chicago Tribune since. Just producer Chris Berube no longer reads Sports Illustrated after it picked the 87 Indians to win the World Series. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, cannot listen to NPR. They once pronounced the Middle East nation of Qatar as Qatar. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, not a fan of Weird Al Yankovic, because Weird Al sang about cleaning all the bathrooms in Grand Central Station with his tongue when clearly he meant Grand Central Terminal. Credibility out the window. The gist. Run DMC is dead to me. After the lyrics of You Talk Too Much reference the independent network news on Channel 9 was actually on Channel 11. Get it right. Um, Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.